I have the honor to announce on behalf of the court that the October 2019 term of the Supreme Court of the United States is now closed and the October 2020 term is now convened. Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me today from New York to recap the first week of the Supreme Court's 2020 term is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. So excited that the term has finally started. I feel like it has taken uh, no time in, in, in you know getting moving <laughs> along with the big list of arguments that uh, happened in the first week, uh, the, the justices have come out swinging with a bunch of, you know, news, including uh, justices Thomas and Alito coming out swinging against a, a big uh, president, Obergefell. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, just 30 minutes before the justices dialed into their oral arguments, you had Thomas releasing uh, a statement that was joined by Alito, basically attacking Obergefell and encouraging challenges to the decision, which is obviously the big landmark 2015 uh, LGBTQ rights decision. It legalized gay marriage across the country um, instantly. And so they basically took it to task and said that it had ruinous consequences for religious liberty and basically saying that they would be more than happy to see it go. Yeah, so I mean, just... uh kind of quick background, uh, this came up actually in a denial of a case that, you know, was basically going after Obergefell, um, Kim Davis, uh, Kentucky County Clerk, who, who made some headlines last year for refusing to issue marriage licenses. Um, you know, the court decided not to take up the case, but uh, Thomas, in his, you know, uh, fashion, uh, <laughs> is, is, is calling for a new challenge. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're hearing from, from, from Thomas and Alito here, uh, but I guess the question is, you know, whether there, there might be any other interest in, in, on the court to revisiting this issue. I mean, it's hard to say how the other Republican appointees feel about the question of revisiting kind of this landmark LGBTQ rights decision. I don't expect that there's a whole lot of appetite in someone like Chief Justice Roberts, you know, who worries so much about the uh, reputational standing of the court um, to you know, wade, wade back into this kind of minefield uh, so soon after it was decided, even though he did write a dissent at the time. But, you know, the, the Supreme Court could soon have its newest member in Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's nominee, obviously, who is expected to be confirmed if, you know, Republicans hold to their guns uh, by the end of the month. Uh, so will she be more willing to, you know, take on some of these challenges and maybe potentially rein in Obergefell and provide more carve outs for, you know, uh, religious litigants like Kim Davis, who are, are say that it, you know, is infringing on their ability to, to exercise their religion? You know, we'll see. I, I think that Jim Obergefell, the named plaintiff in the case, he seems to think so. He told reporters on a call on Monday that, you know, if she's confirmed to the court, she's definitely going to join the, the, the right wing of the court in trying to. Uh, rein those back. But yeah, certainly we have not wasted any time in getting going this term. And I think you're going to continue to see Thomas in his fashion, as you as you say, you know, call on uh, this newly energized conservative court to keep revisiting some of these old uh, precedents and some not so old. So before we can even dive into arguments, there was actually more news uh, from the justices uh, on a South Carolina ballot ruling. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is just going back to the idea that this 
election season is a very litigious one, and the Supreme Court has obviously been involved in a number of cases involving uh, election processes and voting rights and etc. And this case was no different. It was out of South Carolina, and the Supreme Court essentially on Monday evening said that uh, it was a ruling in favor of uh, Republican litigants, and it said that South Carolina could continue requiring uh, voters who want to send in an absentee ballot because of the pandemic to actually have a witness sign the ballot. It's a witness requirement to, you know, in, in their eyes, uh, yeah, or I should say in state officials' eyes, ensure the integrity of the actual ballot. Um, you know, Democrats had sued in court and argued that, you know, this is kind of defeating the purpose of staying home from the polls and sending in an absentee ballot in order to, you know, avoid the risk of contracting the virus because you're going to have to have someone in the room to sign the your ballot in the first place and they say it you know obviously disenfranchises people a disproportionate of whom uh, are minorities and the in the disabled etc and a a lower court judge agreed and uh, blocked the state as it had done in the primary elections from enforcing this witness requirement obviously the republicans uh, state officials they go to the fourth circuit and then eventually the supreme court who agrees with them, and they lift the injunction and allow the continued continued enforcement of this requirement. So what did the justice have to say about the case? Well, not much. So the Supreme Court said that it would allow the counting of the ballots that had already been sent in back when this witness rule was suspended, so i.e. ballots that weren't signed by a witness. However, Justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch said that they essentially would have ruled for the Republicans on that question and had those uh, ballots essentially voided. Um, but, you know, there wasn't there weren't any recorded dissents. The only thing we got was from Kavanaugh, and it was a concurrence kind of explaining his thinking um, in the case. And he says, you know, this court has repeatedly emphasized that federal courts ordinarily should not alter state election rules in the periods so, uh, close to an election. And that's kind of been the pattern that we've seen for the last few months is the Supreme Court kind of deferring in a way, to state election officials or even just state public health officials and how they choose to respond to or not the you know risks and conditions imposed by the pandemic. And so I think you're seeing a Supreme Court that wants to take a very light hand approach, even if it comes to in a case where it upsets a lot of progressives. Obviously, I feel like this is just going to be coming before the court more and more um, in the next few weeks. Uh, could th- could this be a taste of, of more things to come? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a taste of what we've already seen. There's been, <laughs> I think, more than 300 lawsuits that have been filed around the country involving the pandemic and the election. And, you know, I think some experts are warning of a possible repeat of a Bush v. Gore scenario come November. I know that we're all hoping that it doesn't come to that. Um, But obviously, you know, there's been an unprecedented number of absentee ballots sent this year. And you have uh, the president and the vice president obviously sowing doubt in the integrity of those ballots and saying that this is a system that's subject to fraud. Um, And and so you're having the rhetorical seeds planted of a post-election challenge. And so Democrats are warning that a justice Amy Coney Barrett could potentially have a decisive vote in a case like that. I think we're getting a little premature here and, you know, that's a little bit farther down the road, but certainly you and I are going to be <laughs> right there uh, for along for the ride if that if that situation comes down to it. But let's get uh, enough hypotheticals here. Let's get to the uh the oral arguments that we heard this week. Natalie, can yes. you break us down the big copyright software tech clash that took place just yesterday? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. I think we have to start with this one because it was really the blockbuster of the, of the week um, in many ways. On Wednesday, the justice heard uh, Google v. Oracle, which we previewed um, for, for everyone last week, but just kind of the bare highlights. 
decade-long litigation, two major software giants, billions at stake, and it's the first time the court is tackling software copyright protections, which still amazes me that it's taken them this long to really, you know, take up a case like this. Yeah, it is surprising considering, you know, how much money is at stake when you're talking about can these companies essentially just rip off software source code from each other or not? I mean, that seems to be a thing that they would have decided already, but apparently not. So what did the court have to say about this issue of copyright protections for software code, especially in, 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 in the ongoing smart smartphone wars that we've seen over the last few years in the federal courts? So as um, one of our IP gurus here at Law360, Bill Donahue, who's also uh, a fellow co-host uh, for a sister podcast pro se you know he kind of broke down the arguments for 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 uh for us and you know was uh quick to note that justice seemed troubled <laughs> by kind of some of the sweeping policy arguments made by both sides so so you know google is is, is um is being accused of stealing some chunks of software from oracle they didn't steal like they're not supposedly steal the whole thing but they they supposedly stole some big chunks of code to to make their Android phone system. That's what erupted this this whole decade long litigation. Uh, but the justices seemed troubled uh, by, uh, particularly chief, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, seemed skeptical of of Google's arguments uh, that you know if if developers aren't able to to reuse code or borrow code, so to speak, uh, from from others that you know the sky will basically fall <laughs> in, in the software community uh the justice seemed uh, kind of skeptical of that you know they're like well sky really hasn't quite fallen yet um because know. it's been the law in at least the ninth circuit for a while is yep. that right yeah. exactly exactly um but on the other side some of the justices also seem skeptical of extending too much copyright protection to oracle uh so i think that the, the big takeaway seems to be that you know there will be unlikely an overwhelming win for either side uh but we could probably see this being a kind of a, a narrow ruling uh with with the justice putting together some bright lines for for copyright protections which i think are you know the the community is is really looking forward to <laughs> right. in some ways um but that's yeah. all you know crystal ball gazing so well i mean like you said i think that this is an issue that a lot of you know the big tech companies out in silicon valley are waiting with bated breath to see you know what what would potentially subject them to billions of dollars in in liability it seems like a pretty big deal so we'll we'll definitely be looking out for that one um natalie but you also were paying attention to i think it was the first case that was argued of the term and that was a case involving some pretty interesting echoes for what's currently happening at the supreme court in terms of its public reputation so can you kind of break down the delaware party balance case that happened on monday yes monday first argument carney v adams um I feel like this case was just made for like legal nerds like us. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, Carney v. Adams, it, which just quick background, um, Delaware has rules that limit the political makeup of its courts, uh, you know, Republican versus Democrat. And uh, this case is questioning that um, and whether that's constitutional or not. Uh, you know, Im important implications, obviously, for Delaware which has had these rules, I believe, since the late 1800s um, for, for its courts. 
um, including the Chancery Court, uh, but potentially also for other states who don't have quite um, the same kind of rules, but have similar requirements for for their judicial nominating commissions. Yeah, I, I love this case because it's just the optics of the case are so interesting in that you have a Supreme Court um, that, you know, I think most people would agree has suffered some blows to its public standing and reputation yes. in recent years um, with all the partisanship and division surrounding it. Um, that is a, <laughs> That is essentially, you know, sitting in judgment of the Delaware judiciary and how that state has set up its judiciary um, when... A lot of litigants and, you know, stakeholders from that state say that it is a crown jewel uh, in the United States in terms of a state judiciary. And a lot of them owe that reputational standing to some of these requirements, these party balance requirements that you were just mentioning. Obviously, this is not, you know, it's going to come down to the justices, you know, legal interpretation of of, uh, the Constitution. But, you know, the the optics of it are are certainly caught me by, uh, you know, surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, it, it's quite a an interesting one for them to be starting. I feel the term right on, right. Um, in the midst especially of... not so long after the Obergefell statement came out, where yes. everyone was like, you know, look at what's happening. But uh, <laughs> anyway, back to the arguments. Can you break yes. everything down for us? Yeah. So, so this is another one that looks like it it potentially might might be ripe for kind of a, a narrow, very you know dissected ruling. Um, the justice seems to signal that they may end one of the state's rules while preserving another. So kind of just, you know, deeper background, right? The Constitution limits, the state Constitution limits any one party to no more than a bare majority of judgeships on the state's five courts. There was also a later amendment that further limited the just the judgeships to a major party, meaning only Democrats or Republicans. Mm-hmm. So the Third Circuit uh, had struck that bare majority rule uh, in a case that involved a state attorney who was at first politically independent, and he argued that these rules are keeping him from being able to seek a judgeship. Um, And obviously... Because of his political affiliation. Exactly, exactly. So since he was independent, like, how does he fit into this, this, you know, this rule set, basically? Um, So Third Circuit... Circuit struck it down and Delaware's appealing, which is how we got to where we are right now. So d- did the justices seem particularly you know, supportive of this Third Circuit ruling or were they kind of skeptical? So they seemed to signal that they might be inclined to end the major party membership rule. Um, right. Which, you know, would would basically bar anyone who's not a Republican or a Democrat from seeking a judgeship while preserving the other rule that preserves like a bare majority. Bare majority. Yeah. Exactly. Which I, I think would be certainly and essentially a win for, for Delaware and for, you know, the ABA, which is also backing Delaware in this fight as, you know, this being a rule that really helps preserve the independence and mm-hmm. the the you know nonpartisan nature of the bench. Yeah, it sounds like the Supreme Court was a really kind of uncomfortable with the idea of telling, for instance, an independent or someone from the Green Party or something like that that no, you don't, you're not eligible for you know a seat one of these judge judgeships. But they were a little bit less inclined to just take a you know a sledgehammer to the 
the bare majority, the numbers game, you know, saying that you can't have more than a one seat majority on the courts. But I was actually interested in something that Justice Elena Kagan said at Oral Argument. She seemed to be the only one or maybe one of just a few times where they actually seemed to like suggest that maybe there was some something positive about some of these rules. She says, you know, maybe the, the Delaware had said that we wanted to create balanced courts. We want to do that both for the appearance of justice and that those courts won't look political. And we also want to do it because we think that those courts will make better decisions. They won't go to the extremes. They'll move to the center. There won't be polarization. There will be compromise. (laughs) And I just feel like maybe it's kind of a little wink and a nod to maybe some of her colleagues over the Zoom call uh, about the direction of the current U.S. Supreme Court. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it. I know. I, I, I think you're fair to read into it. I, and like I have to say, I'm interested not just to see kind of what the official guideline is and the decision that they come up with, but, you know, kind of what asides might be written in some of the opinions or or dissents that come along with it, um, because it, it does seem to 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 come, as you said, just at this very unique time for for both the Supreme Court and and the nation. So um, although, you know, there was a question during arguments um, from Roberts, Thomas and Breyer, whether, you know, maybe this should be sent back down to the courts Mm. because the attorney who uh, had, uh, you know, filed the suit had actually never applied for a judgeship while he was an independent. So he never kind of like went through that process you know he later switched to to democrat um so so it's kind of like an interesting you know technical question of of whether or not he lacks standing to sue so we'll see we'll see where this this case ends up i i kind of hope that they um go forward and and you know yeah, rule on the merits yeah exactly rule on the merits yeah and in the meantime i think kagan's hoping maybe we can all just be a little bit more like delaware <laughs> and on that <laughs> note i think that pretty much uh pretty much does it for this week. Uh, Thanks so much, Natalie. Thanks, Jimmy. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Daniel Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Bill Donahue, Jeffrey Montgomery, and Haley Khanna. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please leave us a review.